Are you sick and tired of the financial bondage that's been holding you back? Are you ready to take charge of your finances to cut your mortgage payment in half while reducing your taxes significantly? If yes, then this podcast is for you. Fiscal Fitness and Freedom can pay off the national debt in less than 10 years. So from humble beginnings of just about $500, Scott built a billion-dollar mortgage company. So here's your host, Scott Smith. I'm Scott Smith. I'm the host of Fiscal Fitness and Freedom. And today we're interviewing a friend of mine, Eric Darst. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. And Eric has just finished reading my book, A Tale of Two Economies. And Eric and I have bandied about economic ideas for years now. And Eric is was very familiar with the idea of a payment tax before reading the book because we've discussed it at length in the past. And he's had conversations with a number of economists and been sort of in the know on all this kind of stuff for some time. So, Eric, what did you, what were your impressions of the book this time around? Well, first off, uh, I appreciated your effort at trying to explain uh, how the economy works. That's, it's not a simple process, <laughs> but, uh, but I think the way you, you couched it makes a lot of sense and it kind of brings it not down to, but over to the level of, of, uh, a household understanding uh, of what the economy does and how it works. And uh, I think that's really helpful to get people to understand what, of course, is the next part of your book, which is all these very exciting things that you're doing with your concept of the automatic payments tax and all of these civil benefits, advanced civil benefits that can come from that model. That to me is where it really gets exciting. I was thrilled to read it and understand how you're approaching it and the um, the way that uh, the, the automatic payments tax does it in such a way that is really very uh, powerful and solid as part of the econo- economic elements of it. So yes, I was very intrigued and, and uh, it was fun to read. Okay. Well, good. And so let me ask you the most important question, because what I really wanted to focus focus on this book is not economics for economics sake, but economics for changing our standard of living. And so if we had an automated payment tax of 0.25%, a quarter of a percent, you go back through your life, all the jobs you've had and the various things you've done, you've raised a family. How significant of an impact would paying 0.25% instead of whatever percentages you've paid on income <laughs> and social security taxes be for you personally? Well, obviously, it, it brings much more spending money into the picture mm-hmm. uh, and reduces the stress level that goes along with paying for taxes. And uh it, um, it it absolutely would have it would have improved our standard of living quite a bit, um, and uh, would have allowed us to to have a little bit more enjoyment in our lives. Uh, I think that's one of the more important things is is uh, the uh, the idea of of, of personal well being and and yeah. to me this is important. And so yes, I think that your model would very much improve uh, personal well-being. I've I've not met anyone yet who says it wouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would be surprised if there was anyone who said that. (laughs) Yeah. And and you hear, you know, if you think about the, the big battles in Congress over the last 30 years, it's 
been basically wavering between 39 and 36 percent for the income tax rate. You know, presidents have come and gone and, and claimed huge victories where it changes between 36 and 39. Yes. Highest paid in, you know, we're, we're talking about no, 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 nothing in the double digits, not even in the single digits. Right. Quarter of one. It's just mind boggling how we've put so much time and energy on arguing over changing tax rates over something that's archaic and is ne- never going to work. Yes. I would totally agree with you on that. And I think the the other element to this is the frustration that I have over the fact that that uh, the the current uh, very old hundred plus year old uh, tax model is uh, is so heavily manipulated and obfuscated by yeah. those people who can afford to do that yeah. that you end up finding that there's a tremendous number of individuals who really don't participate in the the tax model. Uh, that much at all. And it's typically the ones who are fairly wealthy. And that's a frustration. So the the thing I like so much about this automatic payments tax is one is it's unconditional. Uh, and, and two, it's automatic. It, it, you know, you can't, it's not something that you can avoid through manipulation of tax code. Uh, mm-hmm. To me, that reduces my level of frustration quite a bit, knowing that everyone is participating proportionally. Well, I mean, it was a great example of what you're saying was with Donald Trump when he was president, he he proudly announced that he brought in over 500 million in one particular year and that he hadn't paid any taxes at all. Illustrates, you know, I was surprised there wasn't more of an outcry when he said that, you know, he was making a point. And, And it is... It, it it definitely you know five hundred million not paying anything <laughs> and right under a automated payment tax he'd be paying a quarter of a point of that and that'd be like one and a quarter million dollars and right. I'm quite sure that if we were to sit down with him and say if um would you have been willing to pay one and a quarter million. <laughs> that year right and that would have generated you know three more than three times the revenue that our current tax system generates so it's just we're missing the mark i mean it's the incomes that we're collectively earning is less than one third of one percent of the total payments out there right that's where we focus all of our taxes because not only would you not have to pay the your income taxes and the social security taxes, but property taxes, you know, and sales taxes. So right. it's significant. But there's another well, part. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. And the one thing I wanted to point out about that, too, is that words like income and sales and property are all very subjective, very easily manipulated to 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 do what you want them to do. And that's mm-hmm. the challenge you run into with, with something like income. Well, what is income? What does that mean? Yeah. And, and of course, there's over seven. 7,000 pages of tax code right now, just mostly trying to describe what income is. Yeah, I just was looking that up. It's it's 74,000 pages. Is that what it is now? 74,000. I mean, I have no idea how big of a stack of papers that is. I wouldn't guess. (laughs) I mean, like a 200 page book is like that so i mean it's it's it'd be a huge stack of papers wrap around the earth a couple of times 
Who knows? I, I I guess I should sit down and calculate that sometime and put it out on a podcast. It's just ridiculous. The other thing is, I know, Eric, you've been an entrepreneur. You've been in a lot of startups and as I have. And I think the, I don't know if it's the single most difficult part of a startup, but certainly one of the most difficult part of a startup is, is raising the capital and that it consumes so much of your time and your time is so valuable in a startup. You already are, you know, biting your nails on what's going to work or not. And then you add the challenge of raising money. And so under Banking 2.0, I propose that because the money would be coming from the Fed and not from the depositors money that a bank would lend under banking 2.0. Banks could take on risk that they can't take on today because they'll impact the depositor. And if you were able to go into a bank, and even if it took three or four months, you know, of paperwork to work it through to get startup financing, how would that have changed the trajectory of companies you've started in the past? What do you think? Oh, oh, I guess you could kind of describe me as a recovering serial entrepreneur. So I've been down that road a few times. And I think the thing that would probably help the most or would have helped the most is that there's a big difference in private investors and public and essentially a public investment looks for in terms of return. And so for private investors, you really have to prove to them that they're going to get what they want out of the deal in a very big way. And it's usually a fairly extensive amount of cost in doing that in terms of what they want in return. Uh, Sometimes they say, well, we want you to to build this company up to a certain point and then and then merge it with another company so that we can get out quickly. Exit strategies are a killer. Yeah, they are. And so it makes it really tough to find or design the kind of pitch that you want to put forth to to get the money that you need for these companies uh, for these startups if yes. however it's coming from a more of a public sector yeah it's a different model and it's a different th- way of thinking about what your what their value is with what they're loaning right. you yes exactly the way i perceive banking 2.0 a community enterprise fund funded by Fed reserves would startup was going to return 8% a year on the capital. That'd be fine. I mean, that's a fine yield. I've taken uh, not just my own deals, but I've taken other people's deals in where the companies actually were, they didn't ever got, they never got VC financing, but they turned into very successful companies by community measures, by the founders measures, by the employees, by the customers. They're making, they're making a modest upper single digit return each year. And the VCs that I took that in scoffed at that. I mean, that they couldn't consider it because of the mandate they have on their money. Right, right. Exactly. It, it's not like they're trying to be bad guys. It just doesn't work economically on private. So that's, that's, I like the distinction between public and private in that regard. Yeah. Well, the other thing that really is, is something that really intrigues me about this is a lot of the things I wanted to do are more what you would call impact investment, mm-hmm. more social contribution mm-hmm. than just an economic engine of, you know, some growth engine. And so when you have models like what you're suggesting, you, have a much better opportunity to provide social contribution, civil contribution, 
things that may not make a gazillion dollars, but can be very valuable to your community. Uh, and to me, that's what the enterprise fund looks like. It says, oh my yeah. gosh, there's so much we can do in yeah. terms of contribution to our, to our world. That I, oh man, you're right. Uh, that I would argue that a lot of the humongous companies that are VC funded, I can see a lot of them doing more damage to the economy than good, you know, because they destroy mom and pop and backbone companies throughout the nation. Yes. You know, certainly PE rollups and consolidations are, are doing that. Um, Sherry, my wife just has written a book. I got to get a copy of it to you called The Spiritual Entrepreneur. Oh. And that's been her learning from start doing a startup was raising the money in the beginning and you have to have this at least a 10x return and then coming to recognize wait my company's actually quite successful it's not meeting those standards but Right. Look at the hundreds of thousands of people that this assessment has helped and teachers has changed. And and so her whole book was about the demand for these excessive returns from the capital sources we have today. Yes. Just destroying entrepreneurs and destroying communities. Well, it's, it, I'm, I'm really glad that you say that because I kind of look at it from the perspective that would like to focus on what I call the, the, the three well-beings, the personal well-being cultural well-being and ecosystem well-being. Mm -hmm. But when you let money be the arbiter of your well-being, all of those others go away. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't matter, you know, the damage that you do to the ecosystem, uh, the, the mineral and, and fossil fuel extractions that take place in supporting these really large corporations, all for the sake of a 10x return. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're letting money be the arbiter of your well-being. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the frustration that I have. So when I see models like yours with the Enterprise Fund, I'm going, this is correct. What we're doing now is we're approaching it from the perspective of providing well-being at the personal, cultural, and ecosystem level, which is really what we should be focusing on these days. Because if not... As some people call it, uh, degrowth by disaster, you know, and, and I think that it's important that we focus on contribution in that perspective. I agree. I agree. There's another there's another interesting aspect of it. Uh, another thing that disturbs me about the way VC funding innately has to work is how many companies die on the vine that they funded initially. They're getting off the ground, but they're just not going to become you know, the 10 to 50 X returns that are necessary. And so they don't fund them because they've got to put their money towards the ones that are. And I guess the model on it, but here's the challenge. I actually met a friend of mine. He's a billionaire, falls under that category. He was years ago was a pretty significant LP in VC funds and he mm -hmm. doesn't invest in VCs anymore. And he doesn't for one simple reason. And it's it's the risk return profile. He said, Scott, look at it this way. You start on this side of the curve and it's a, a $50,000 investment. You're going to buy a Subway franchise, you know, and right. the probability of success is darn near 100%. Okay. Yes. And so then you get to the million dollar investment and as you keep going. The percentage of probability of success goes down. Mm -hmm. We look at a VC, let's say it's a, a $5 billion fund and they're going to 
put that in 40 companies, the size of the each of those investments, you're down there where the odds of success are maybe one in 10, which means nine out of 10 die. But right. those nine out of 10 could be considered successful under another another paradigm. And I absolutely agree with you. Yes. You're taking institutional pension fund money and you're putting it into a Russian roulette type of a scenario you're killing off 90 percent of good guys who are contributing to the economy for the sake of that one hit you have to have he says it's a very destructive model and he backed out of he doesn't finance he doesn't buy lp interest in vcs anymore that's really interesting yeah there's a there's a fellow that i that i'm friends with and by the name of jed emerson who has spent some time talking about and developing uh what he calls impact investment models Mm-hmm. Uh, where it, it's it tones down the VC concept and turns it more into investment for 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 value and impact, social value and social impact, but still has a, a model that, that that makes the kind of returns that you would like to see reasonably. Uh, and so I think that there are some people out there who are trying hard to figure out how to make that work. Yeah, there are. There's so here's something it's it's been little observed, but when these social capital impact invest first started heating up in the Bay Area, Um, you know, people were making these making investments and and they were looking at the social impact and they weren't too focused on what the return were. They they were philanthropists otherwise where they weren't going to get any return. And so this is kind of a cool concept. There a few years into it, there was a study by Wells Fargo and everyone celebrated the study, but to me, it became a death knell for social um, capital. It, the study showed that if you invested in socially responsible enterprises, the returns were equal or even higher than in other investments. And so everybody celebrated that. But what that did is shift in the mind of the social on, um, investors like, oh, I can still make the big return. And suddenly so at all the conferences, I was seeing that that return was equally important as it was at the the VC conferences. And I just watched the heart and soul of social capital shift right, right before me. Oh, my goodness. Because of that, you know, and that was not the intent of the study. The intent of the study was to encourage further capital to go into it. Right. it, it it's interesting how little things like that can make a huge difference. So banking 2.0 solves that problem. And it even allows, you know, I envision a banking 2.0 could um, look at, you know, if we get a re- if we just get the capital back in to return to the Fed, we haven't inflated the money supply and right. zero return over maybe 10 years. But right. 10% of the principal back each year and you're home free for certain types of projects around a community. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yes. Yeah. The community. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that because I almost look at the, the future of, of legislation to be focused on thinking of themselves more as investor, as investors. Mm-hmm. investment into the public, invest into the, the, the community, 
into the culture. And they base their decisions on, do we have the capacity to do the work that needs to be done? And do we have the need, those people who could use that help? Uh, and, and then stop there. Don't try to say, okay, but are, do, are we going to get our 3, 3% GDP growth out of this? Is this going to actually happen? Mm-hmm. Well, the problem you run into with when you're focused so heavily on growth, that um, it does a tremendous amount of ecosystem damage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but GDP growth mm-hmm. uh, or GDP is about 99.9% correlated to uh, fossil fuel and mineral extraction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the so we, metrics we use for GDP originated during wartime, uh, World War II in, in the UK. Yeah. For very specific purposes that are not the same aligned with the purposes of the GD. And, yes. and um, even CPI, the Consumer Price Index, we've conveniently pulled different things out of that over the time. I've right. to put together, um, get some graduate students to go back and calculate inflation over the past 40 or 50 years, keeping in some of those metrics that were pulled yes. out. And, you know, and after we pull them out, you'd see the numbers changing. Oh, we've got inflation under control. And I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah, it's a <laughs> well, and the other thing, too, is if you if you hold to a three percent GDP growth per year, which is what the focus is and compound that in, in 24 years, you are doubling the extraction of of mineral and fossil fuel, which, of course, is not even sustainable. But that's what's happening. And the other thing that's really interesting is that you point out that, that there are two different kinds of economies, the, you know, the, the monetary economy and the and the material economy. And I think we focus so much on the monetary economy that yeah. we forget what is occurring on the material side of, of the economy. And that's, so that's a great example of that. Now I'm, I'm doing research into this area is the monetary economy is overduly influencing the material economy in terms of the price of housing now. So yes. as we have essentially securitized housing. So what I mean by that is if a PE fund is buying housing and the PE fund is selling a limited partnership units, those mm-hmm. are financial assets that are competing against other financial assets. That's a mm-hmm. form of securitization. And so suddenly the needs of growth and return that are in the monetary economy are dictating where the values of real estate go and people's wages. That's an entirely different metric that they're not correlated to that. And more and more of our housing is unaffordable to regular citizens. And that's incredibly damaging to our economy. So that's a theme when I I talk about a tale of two economies. Yes. It's the tale of the monetary economy and the material economy and their interrelationship. And quite often it is the monetary economy that is damaging the material economy and our standard of living in the material economy. So my theme, what I've concluded is that mostly technology really helps fuel productive efficiency. We couldn't be where we are today without it. And our standard of living generally goes up because of technology, but the monetary economy is eroding that growth in our standard of living. Yes. That should not be the case. There's no reason to have a monetary economy other than it should be stoking and supporting the material economy. That's the whole reason to have one. But that's not what's happening today. Exactly. It should be a medium of exchange. That really should be its focus. I would totally agree because if you look at it from the point of view of interest rates, an interest rate to me is nothing more than essentially a tax on the material economy. 
Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's the way I look at it. Yeah. So because yeah, so when you're talking about taxation and the current model, well, yes, it's the, the percentages are fairly high. But if you start rolling in some of these other things that go along with it, like interest, then you're really paying a huge tax. Yeah, to the I, I, it seems to me from my calculations, we pay the highest tax to the monetary economy more so than we even pay to the government. That's that's a, a huge irony. Um, yes. Banking 2.0 would change that. And by the way, what you've just your observation there, while maybe not a lot of people in the monetary in the modern economy are landing on that yet i think more and more are it's not it's not unique or novel historically empires and people you know that has people have reached that conclusion before and the the rise and fall of the empires directly correlates to that cost of interest. Yes. And that yes. is the primary reason why in the Bible, both in the um, Judeo yes. and the Christian traditions, certainly Hindu, Muslims, Islam tradition, Hinduism and Buddhism, five world religions all banned interest. And yes. they banned interest because of what you said. It wasn't out of brotherly love. It was interest essentially ultimately destroys the value of a currency. Yes. And if you notice, like in the book of Nehemiah, for example, as they are retooling Jerusalem for a, a new economy, actually a lot of the principles that I propose in my book come found in, in that book of Nehemiah, which is fascinating, including a payment tax is included in there. But, yeah. but they ban the use of interest and they get very clever about it. It's the reason it is mathematically determined from my mind, it's a logical conclusion they come to is they ban the use of interest with the shekel within Israel, but it's okay to charge a foreign nation interest. Yeah. <laughs> so what you're doing is just looking out for the value of your nation's currency and doing right, that. Right. And so not so much brotherly love as it's just sheer mathematics. Well, in the moment that you that you start charging interest, you, you, you've converted money from a medium of exchange into a commodity. And and but but it's a commodity that has no real intrinsic value to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what the problem I run into with this is that it just doesn't make any sense to to uh turn something that has no intrinsic value into a commodity. Yeah. Uh, and that's where a lot of this financial economy comes from is in from that model. Uh, and and so again, you run into the question of well, if if you have no intrinsic value, then what is the value to the personal well-being? Yeah, and I, I kind of get lost in that conversation a little bit, but that's where I start scratching my head, going, I don't quite understand why this is the way it is. You might say that we securitized currency, we securitized money. And yes, that's a problem. That is a problem. Yeah. Yes, I would well, totally agree with that statement. That's absolutely true. <laughs> Eric, we should have you back again and let's talk about a few. Let's talk about how some of the benefits that I propose that can come out of a payment tax with a balance oh, yes. would impact society. But we're we're getting near the end of the uh, this podcast. So thank right. you for joining us and hope to have you back again soon. And thank you, everyone, for, for uh, listening. Thank you, Scott. I look forward to the next round. I do, too. So that's it for today's episode of Fiscal Fitness and Freedom. Head on over to iTunes or wherever you listen and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week who posts a review on iTunes will win a chance in a grand prize drawing to win a $25,000 value 
grand prize drawing for a private VIP mentoring session with Scott Smith himself. Be sure to head on over to fiscalfitnessandfreedom.com and pick up a copy of Scott's blueprint to discovering your own unique formula to personal success. And join us on the next episode.